I don't say he really taught me this, but he showed me this. You can't get around it without working your tail off. And my dad, as I said, was a club pro for the military, even though he had some pretty prestigious jobs there. I've seen my dad cleaning toilets. I've seen him mowing the fairways. There wasn't a single thing that dad wouldn't do. And he found satisfaction in that. Now, he didn't really like cleaning toilets, I'm sure, but damn sure if it needed to get done, it got done one way or the other. I think because of that, listen, you don't need to cater to me. I will figure this out. Just a stupid example. I had to return a rental car the other day, and the only way to get from the airport to my hotel was either call a taxi for a mile or walk. So I started walking. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. I hope you are out there enjoying your day, car paying that diem, gathering them rosebuds, and enjoying the company of the people and things around you. I am, and one of the things I'm going to put near your ears in just a second is a great interview with this week's guest, Rich Beam. Rich is a professional golfer. He's won three times on the PGA Tour, including winning the 2002 PGA Championship, which is one of golf's four major tournaments. We'll talk a little bit more about how important that is in a minute. I bumped into Rich at a very cool golf club a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about his life as a member of the PGA Champions Tour today and what motivates him. I thought it would make for a great conversation about how one manages their sense of self throughout the arc of an athlete's career, the ups on the way up, the downs on the way down, and understanding who you are throughout the whole thing. I want to say hello to everybody out there in BYLR Radio Land. I'm proud to be a part of this fine network, and I know you'll love today's episode with champion Rich Beam. I also want to share that, hey, guess what? I'm actually doing live comedy this weekend. I cannot wait. It is Thursday, November 19th through Sunday, November 22nd. I'll be opening for the hilarious Rocky Dale Davis at the Stardome Comedy Club in Birmingham, Alabama. So if you live in Birmingham or you know some people who live in Birmingham, gather some friends. Put some underwear on your face and come on out for this socially distanced show. I can't wait. I want to say hello to some listeners. Thanks for reaching out last week. Charlotte Chinawala, thank you for your suggestions for new guests. I greatly appreciate it. If you have some suggestions for guests or just want to provide me some feedback, shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Thanks. Do that. I also want to give a shout out. A happy, happy, happy. 50th wedding anniversary to my listeners, Tom and Linda Smith. That's right, Tom and Linda Smith. I see you out there listening, and I want to congratulate you on the selflessness and patience and forgiveness and courage and laughter that got you to 50 years of being married to each other. I don't know your son. I have met him, but I don't know him. But I do know this about him. He married in Jen O'Neill Smith, maybe the nicest person in all of comedy. Now, granted, that is not a very high bar. I'll give you that. Most people in comedy can be miserable freaks, but Jen is seriously the best. And she is the co-founder of the Red Clay Comedy Festival, which is a super fun comedy festival right here in East Atlanta Village. And it gets some of the best comedians from all over the country out. Hey, speaking of anniversaries, I got one of them coming up too. And I just want to say thank you to my beautiful wife, Stacy. I love you. I appreciate your forgiveness and patience with me over these past 13 years and your support of me as I chase the things in my life that give me joy and 
help me find meaning like the Crazy Money Podcast. So thank you, baby, for doing that. And I'm sorry that I sometimes sleep in my golf shirts and that you have a, a big problem with it. Sorry, that made it sound as if you're the one with the problem. I mean, what I meant to say was, I'm sorry that the fact that I sleep in golf shirts bothers you. Wait a minute, let me say that again. I'm sorry that sometimes I bother you because I sleep in golf shirts. Look, the modern golf shirt is very comfortable, is what I'm trying to say. And sometimes they're clean when I do it, listeners. I'm not wearing a dirty, sweaty golf shirt to bed, but that's just kind of a recent pet peeve that came up in our marriage. Anyway, sweetie, I love you. And speaking of golf shirts, let's talk about a great golfer, Rich Beam. And also it's relevant to anniversaries because in this interview, Rich talks about how important his wife and his family have been in his career and how having somebody he loves on the road with him or taking care of the kids at home was always something that gave him strength and confidence that he could go out there and be the best golfer he could be. And I think that's something to meditate on, especially as we move in to the Thanksgiving week, how grateful we should be for the way that stability at home allows us to be our best in the other areas of our lives. So I met Rich Beam on this golf trip with some buddies a few weeks ago. And by the way, if COVID has taught us nothing, it's that we must take the opportunity while we are young and healthy to travel and enjoy each other's company while we have the opportunity. Yes, we were all socially distanced and we practiced good droplet hygiene. But I bumped into Rich after dinner in this club with my friend Rob Schultz. And I want to say I need to give Rob a shout out here because previously on Crazy Money, I've made fun of his non-athletic footwear that he uses to walk around our neighborhood while listening to Crazy Money. And I just want to say, Rob, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about your footwear. So Rich was talking to the group of us after dinner one night, and he was talking about how he had just finished dead freaking last in one of the tournaments on the Champions Tour, and how he was really looking at making sure his motivation when he goes out there to play golf today is really about having fun and doing his best and not getting too tied up in the score. And we'll talk about that on this episode. Before we go too far, this is not a golf podcast, so I'm just going to run through some quick PGA terms. Q school means qualifying school. It is the process of playing through tournaments to earn one's PGA tour card, which there's only, I think, 130 of every year given out. And you have to keep your tour card to be invited back to play in tournaments on the PGA tour. That is different than being a PGA professional, which most people who work or most of the pros that you see at golf clubs, those are PGA professionals who can play golf at a certain level, but it's a very different level than being able to play at the highest heights of the PGA Tour. A major championship that we refer to, there's four majors. It's the Masters, which we just had recently, the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship, aka the British Open. So those are four. Making the cut. Every week, a golf tournament on the PGA Tour is, is usually four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Half the field is eliminated after the round on Friday, and if you make the cut, you get to play in the third and fourth round. So that's what that language is. All right, and if you don't know any other golf terms that come up, I don't know, Google it. Real quick, I want to say thanks to those who offered input for this interview. The Golf Whisperer at uh, the Capital City Club, Todd Peterson, Yancey Spruill, my old buddy, Bill Jancy, my new buddy, and Craig Brewer, another old buddy, for some thoughts on relevant golf questions. All right, let's talk about Rich Beam. Rich Beam won the 2002 PGA Championship, one of golf's four major tournaments. Rich's win at Hazeltine was as unlikely as the groovy dance he busted out after sinking his final putt of the tournament. You should Google that too. Describing himself as the luckiest guy in the world, Rich loves golf and hanging out with people who give him energy. As you'll hear, he played the game loose and wide open, but the rising expectations from himself and from others after winning the PGA Championship became a distraction and he never won on tour again. 
On today's Crazy Money, he speaks candidly about grinding his way up the golf ladder and how he found purpose and meaning in his life as his PGA prospects began to dim. Rich was born in Phoenix, Arizona, grew up in El Paso, Texas, and played college golf at New Mexico State University. Today, he plays on the PGA Champions Tour and works as a TV golf analyst on Sky Sports in the UK and Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my conversation with Mr. Rich Beam, the Beamer. Rich Beam, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you very kindly. Good to be here. Rich, you're a PGA Championship winner, a three-time PGA Tour winner, and a television personality, but I read that you still carry in your wallet your Magnolia Electronics employee ID card. When did you work there, and why do you still carry it? Funny, I don't carry it right now, and here's the reason to answer the first question first, because I moved about two years ago. I had a drunk drawer in my house. And I was going through a bunch of stuff and I happened to take it out of my wallet because I was changing wallets out and it ended up in this junk drawer. And now the junk drawer is in, we downsized greatly. So now my junk drawer is in a storage unit about 300 yards from my house. So it's over there, but I know exactly where it's at. I worked there in, let's see here, 1994, 1994, 1995, almost at one full year. I was out of college, I took a job up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota as a assistant golf pro at a place called Westward Ho, or at least then it was called Westward Ho Gutcha Club and met a gal and fell in love and this was going to be it. I was going to get married and she decided to move out to Seattle to be with her brother and pursue a degree. And so I'm like, okay, I got nothing better to do. So I'll follow her out there and ended up applying for a job at Magnolia Hi-Fi and got the job and worked in the Bellevue store. And the greatest thing that ever came about it, besides not marrying the girl, was <laughs> was meeting my best friend in the world, David Wyatt. And David and I have been best friends since that day we met back in, it would have been September of 1994. This is not before you had started trying to make a living as a professional golfer. Is that correct? No, no. I actually, right out of college, I had literally no earthly idea what I was going to do. And so I got a job as an assistant pro up in Sioux Falls, kind of following my dad's footsteps. My dad was a PGA of America pro for a lifetime member, so over 25 years. And so I did that just because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to, where I wanted to take my life. I had no plan. I just knew that golf had to be involved somehow. So I went up to Sioux Falls, took a job up there right out of college, never really had any opportunities to go play. Besides, I wasn't good enough at the time. There's no doubt. I went up there, worked a couple of seasons, and then after my second season, I played a few golf tournaments in between, but it wasn't anything full-time. At the end of 94, I'm sorry, I think it was maybe 95, I went up to Seattle with my then-girlfriend and took that job, and I literally had no plan. I mean, to be fair, I don't really know if I have a plan right now. (laughs) I just kind of, I'm one of these guys, it's so funny, I'm the luckiest guy in the world, I think. I fall into things. You know, my closest friends will discount that, but I literally didn't have a plan in 1998 when I quit my job at El Paso Country Club and went to Q school. If that didn't work out, I had zero backup plan. And when I say zero backup plan, I mean, I had nothing. I mean, (laughs) I would have been searching for something else to do, but I ended up making it on tour and here I am. And then once that stopped, I had no idea what I was going to do. And all of a sudden I found that I'm pretty good with a microphone in my hand, making stuff up and it's worked out well. But, you know, going back to when I was working there selling cell phones and car stereos, 
I literally didn't know what I was doing. Mm. I listen, I couldn't tell you what kind of stereo or what kind of speakers went into a 1994 Honda Civic when people would come in. I'd sell them speaker sizes that were so far off that <laughs> installers would be like, what the hell did you just sell this guy? I said, I sold, sold him something that sounded really cool. And he goes, they don't fit. Oh, okay. Well, wow. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So you're selling cell phones and car stereos. Were pagers still a thing back then? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm selling cell phones. I mean, these were those flip penny phones that they would give away just so they can get you the, the 30 minutes for $30. You get 30 minutes a month for $30, and that's incoming and outgoing phone calls. Wow. So, I mean, if you look at how much time we spend on our phone these days, if you had to rack up all the minutes on your little phone right here, and if you went over, it was like, I don't know, probably 50 cents a minute. What do you think your phone bill would look like? <laughs> pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. So what took you from 1994 selling pagers and car stereos to making your way onto the PGA Tour through Q School, which for our listeners is qualifying school, the way you earn your PGA Tour card? We broke up and then I left in 1996 out of Seattle. I went back home to Las Cruces, New Mexico, talked to my dad a little bit. We raised a little bit of money. I went out and played golf that summer with the help of somebody who was really close to my dad. Sorry to interrupt, but why did you have to raise money? I mean, I was broke. To go out on on the road and pay for just the essentials, you know, gas money, food, not even clothing. I mean, I never thought about buying a golf shirt, you know, food, gas, clothing, just to get from tournament to tournament to be able to play. So I raised about $5,000. I made it about two and a half months on that $5,000. I played well. I actually came back with more money than I left with, which was kind of surprising in that era because, I mean, I, I tried to do everything on the cheap, unlike today, shack up with families on the road that would put me up at each tournament, which they would kind of look after you a little bit, you know, they, you know, feed you, they would really kind of take care of you and whatnot. And I befriended a lot of folks doing that on the tour back in the day. And then towards the end of that summer, I went back and I literally had nothing to do. I was in Las Cruces and I had a plan to come out to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I am now. I was going to take a job up at Desert Mountain in the bag room, just cleaning clubs, doing grunt work. My dad said, there's an opening at El Paso Country Club. Why don't you go down and apply for it? And so I did. I knew the head pro. He and I played college golf against one another. He was much more mature than I was by a long shot. And, uh, for whatever reason, he hired me. So I went to go work for him. And that's how I ended up at El Paso Country Club in 96. And then kind of fast forward a couple of years later, 1998, I got the opportunity to play a lot when I was an assistant pro there. In fact, I was encouraged. I had to play a couple of days a week with the members. And for whatever reason, in 1998, I started playing really well. And I started not only beating my boss, but beating every other pro in the section. And he was pretty much the king of the hill there. And that didn't go over very well, me beating him on a <laughs> weekly basis. I can promise you that. I wasn't a very uh, good loser. I, I couldn't lose to him. And he didn't want to be, he wanted my best and he got it. But I played well. I mean, I won, you know, just small tournaments, but I won like seven of 10 events that summer. And then he just said, you need to go to Q school or you need to quit, but you can't work here anymore because you're not cut out for it, which I wasn't. <laughs> but he was, was very graceful. But he was paying you 13 large. You were making just over rent, 10 grand a year. In rent money, rent money was only 100 bucks a month. Man, I was rolling it. I mean, $432 every two weeks? Come on. Why would I ever want to leave? <laughs> it was weird. I mean, you know, funny enough, in 1998, I was paid 13000 a year, but through my tournament winnings, not including what I won at the finals at Q School, I mean, I won like almost $30,000 playing. 
I mean, I was playing very well and I just kind of racked up. The, I didn't even realize how much money I had won in the summertime until my accountant says, well, you're lucky. You're kind of on the threshold of actually having to pay taxes. I'm like, what? <laughs> Before we jump into sort of the, as your career takes off in the PGA, what did you want to do when you were 14 years old, when you grew up? Did you know you wanted to be a pro golfer? God, no, 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 not at all. My dad actually worked for the government for the military as a golf professional. So I traveled all around. New Mexico is kind of home base, but then we moved to Panama for three and a half years. And then after that, we moved to Berlin, Germany. So at 14 years old, I would have been living in Berlin, Germany when the wall was up. And I literally had, once again, I did not have a plan. I was living for today. As far as what I wanted to do, golf wasn't even in the equation because back then golf wasn't cool. Unlike today where, you you know, Tiger Woods brought it to the masses, but then Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, you know, today's kids, their generation has made it, I think, very cool. And so being a golfer back then, that wasn't even on the radar. Hell, guys back then weren't even, they weren't making any money there. What I really wanted to do and something that I would still pursue even at 50 years old, I'd love to be in advertising. I think the process of advertising, I'd love to make commercials. I love to come up with ideas about commercials. One of my close friends is actually in the advertising business up in Minneapolis. I send him ideas all the time and he laughs at them. He thinks they're funny, but turning those into something reality is a little bit more of a process than that. All right. You get through Q school and what you're painting here is that the realities of the tour, right? It's not as glamorous as people think, and it takes a long time to get established on the tour. How do you go from newcomer to winner on the PGA tour? Part of it was I'm playing good. And a lot of it was trying to figure out how not to stare at the other players on the driving range. You know, my first ever PGA tour event, I go out to the driving range and Marco Mira, who won two majors in 1997. Mm-hmm. And I get out there in 1999, Marco Mira hit balls a couple down from me. Then you got Lee Jansen who won the U S open the year prior you got Curtis Strange back behind me, and I'm thinking to myself, I love watching these guys on TV, and I'm hitting balls next to them because we're going to play in the Sony Open, same tournament. I was in awe. I was starstruck, and unlike today's player, they get out there. They don't really care who it is. They're ready to go, but I was starstruck. A lot of it was also being a little bit naive and not really having respect for them, but knowing full well that we still were playing the same game on the same golf course, and your name is one thing, but, you know, what you shoot is another thing. You're not under par teeing off just because your name is Curtis Strange. And so that kind of helped as well, just realizing that we're all out there playing the same course, same conditions, and nothing's going to be given to you. You got to go out there and earn it, which is still the case today. But I made a bunch of cuts, even though I didn't have any good finishes, but I made some cuts, which gives you some confidence. At the beginning of the season, then I missed like three or four in a row. And then I got lucky. I went home for two weeks and I needed a break. I needed to kind of get off the road because I had never traveled that much. I'd never had a schedule where I was on the road that much. And you're right. As glamorous as it probably was back in the day, because I mean, I'm 28 years old. I'm driving my Ford Explorer around part of the country, chasing the golf ball and doing something that I not in a million years ever thought that I would do. But after a while, you realize that it's kind of a lonely experience. You don't get a lot of buddies out there. And this is when Tiger was starting to kind of beat up on everybody. <laughs> and guys would no longer, you know, the generation beforehand, they'd go play golf and then they'd, you know, get done, sign their scorecard and 
go to the bar and hang out and they'd sit there and compare bad shots with the other pros and they'd sit around the bar and just socialize and chatter. But Tiger changed all that. He was beating everybody up and everybody's like, we got to figure out how to do this better or we're going to, we're going to lose our jobs. So guys then would go trainers. I mean, psychologists go out to the driving range chip. I mean, they put a lot more time and effort in when you're out there, you got no friends. You have friends, you have acquaintances, but there's nobody rooting for you. It's not like back home where you got some guys that are, you know, nice round and this and that. They'll say nice round, you know, and then underneath their breath, you're like, up yours, you know, I mean, (laughs) lucky bastard or something like that. That part of it was different. But then how I won was just, I went back home. I had two weeks back in El Paso. I spent some time with my instructor, funny enough, who was the guy that hired me in El Paso Country Club. His name is Cameron Doan. We put some good work in and I went back out and then I won on my eighth start on the PGA Tour, eighth or ninth start, whatever. And that's Kemper Open. That changed everything. That changed my entire life without a doubt. Did having money in the bank change the things you worried about and allow you to play better? You know, funny enough, here's the interesting thing about that. I won a check. I won $450,000 for that victory, but the money wasn't mine. I had sponsors. I think there was 25 guys at El Paso Country Club who put in $3,000 each. So I started off in 1999 with $75,000 in the bank to help cover expenses. And whatever earnings I made went back into this pool and I got a little bit of a stipend out of it. So when I won the $450,000, that wasn't mine. That went back into the pool and I didn't have that as much as folks would believe. So I literally, you know, I would call my accountant who was in charge of the account and he would, you know, release some funds to me to, to be a 28 year old on the road. There's no doubt. And he understood that, but it wasn't mine. So that really kind of kept me grounded as far as, you know, cause I went out the next day after winning and I wanted to go buy a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> As one does when you're 28 years old. Listen, why wouldn't you, you know? (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it did change me financially though. I mean, because then I didn't have to worry about it so much, you know, because I got some bonus checks and this and that. So then money wasn't the object. Now it was, I was lucky I was able to go out and play without worrying about the money. And how are you feeling going into the 2002 season? 2002 was fantastic because I ended up, i Got my card back, or I retained my card at the end of 2001 by having a really good finish where I struggled for quite a bit of 2000 and 2001. And I just got married in December of 2001. I was excited about it. I was really excited about it. I felt like things off the golf course were very good. And I think that you could probably look at a lot of the folks on tour, with the exception of a few, and the correlation between what's going on off the golf course. If it's going well, it correlates to how they're playing. And I'll use Jack Nicholas as probably the greatest example. He has an incredible, incredible wife in Barbara. And he didn't have to think about much when it came to raising the kids and doing things that a husband and father would do when he's away. Not saying that he wasn't a great husband, a great father, but Barbara took care of the household and allowed Jack to go play golf. He had that freedom. And I think when you have that freedom, that helps you out immensely. Now, granted, he had the talent, he had the mindset, he had it all. But behind the scenes, you have to have somebody there that is very, very strong. And Jack had that. I had the same thing with my wife. Even though we didn't have kids, I had somebody in my corner who was literally taking an interest in everything that I was doing. And then when I I I finished fourth in Doral early in the year, it gave me the freedom to say, honey, call up your employer give them your two weeks notice, 
I'm paying off all your school debts. You know, I just won 250 grand and I want you to travel with me full time. And she did. I think that's what really changed was having my wife come out there with me and supporting me because she was excited about it. I was excited about it. And when you're out there and as I stated earlier, if you have somebody to kind of make the road a little bit less lonely, that makes a huge difference, massive difference. Right. Right. So 2002 is your breakthrough year. Mm -hmm. What does it mean when you start really hitting your stride? Like what's happening on the golf course? Are you thinking about it? Are you just going with the flow? Is golf just channeling through you at this point? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, I think most athletes, the top athletes in whatever sport they play, the greats will say sometimes that this game seems to slow down for them. They're able to see everything so much clearer and easier. There's nothing that's clouded in their judgment, their thinking. The game just kind of presents itself to them and they just take advantage of that. And that's what was going on with me. I was playing so well. My caddy and I were, we were becoming really best friends at that time. My wife was out there with me. It was fun being on the road. The golf was good. I enjoyed being out there working at it. And then when I left, I didn't think about it when I left the golf course. We didn't really talk about it. We just disappeared from it. To me, that's massive. I think that when you leave your job, no matter what job you're in, the last thing that you should do when you go home is think more about that job. And in this day and age, unfortunately, it's nearly impossible Seriously. with the cell phones and all that. Back then in 02, you didn't have the texting, you know, you could get emails, but you didn't have all the, the ways of getting a hold of each other. I mean, phone calls still happened. <laughs> you know, that's how you communicate with folks. And so that part of it was fantastic. When you have a personality like mine that's easily distracted, it was probably very beneficial that I am a little bit older now and didn't have those distractions like a cell phone that kept me from a lot of things. But I just think being out there and just enjoying what I was doing, because I was, I was having a great time. I mean, life could not have been any better and it reflected in how I played and what I was doing out there. And it was, it was blissful. I'm not going to lie. It was great. So you win the international and two weeks later, you're playing a practice round at the PGA championship. And for our listeners, the PGA is one of the four major championships that every golfer aspires to win. That is the crowning achievement in golf. Well, I mean, maybe the hall of fame is the crowning achievement, whatever, but I mean, you are either a major winner or you are not a major winner. That's exactly right. And two monikers folks have is the greatest player to never won a major, hasn't won a major yet. <laughs> and then once you do, you're a major champion. And, I, and let me just tell you a quick funny story is that a couple of years ago, I went back to the PGA of America, which is located in Palm Beach Gardens, right next to where the Honda Classic is played. And I went back to go see my good friend, who's the media director, Julius Mason. And he goes, well, I'm busy right now, but I have Bob Denny. Bob is the historian for the PGA of America, and he does all the artifacts and things like that. So he showed me around the kind of the Constitution where they first drafted it up back in New York. I want to say it was 1917. And then all the artifacts and things like that. I mean, it was just mind-blowing, all the things. And then he said something that was really funny. He says, you know, there's not as many major champions out there that you think. And I go, what do you mean? He says, well, you're number 183. 183, what does that mean? He says, of all the men that have ever played this game, you're the only the 183rd different male to win a major championship. 
of everybody that's ever teed it up. Because so many players win multiple majors. Because Jack is, yeah, Jack's got 18, Tiger's got 15. Yeah, there's a lot of multiple ones. So I'm only the 183rd different male, even though there's been obviously multiple ones won. But I kind of thought that's pretty extraordinary. I didn't realize that, you know, that's such a small number. If you think of all the millions upon millions of people that have ever played, even professionally, I can't tell you how many guys that have teed it up professionally that I went through playing in college against that were so much better than I was in college. They never made it. That to me, that's kind of shocking, but it's a very cool number to have. So anyways. You're playing in a practice round at this major, at the PGA Championship in 2002 at a golf course in Minnesota called Hazeltine. I've never played the course, but I have had brunch there and it was lovely. So you're playing with Fuzzy Zeller. Tell us the story of what Fuzzy said to you. Yeah, so we're playing. I got the dream five. Some of all the golfers are listening. I'm playing with Fuzzy Zeller, John Daly, Robert Gomez, and Pat Perez. Amazing. I'm the quiet one in this group. I'm the quiet (laughs) one in this one by a long shot. So we're on the fifth hole, and I played the day before, and this was on a Tuesday. And we get to the fifth hole, and it's a dogleg right par four. I get up there, and I hit driver. I hit driver over the corner. Fuzzy goes, what are you doing, Beamer? It's a two-iron, eight-iron into the green. Why are you hitting driver here? I said, Fuzzy, I got $1.6 million in the bank and a two-year exemption. I'm hitting driver everywhere. And he goes, Okay. And then after I ended up winning, I was on Golf Channel and they were doing an interview with me and he calls in and he goes, you know, I asked you what the hell you're doing. He says, you done good, son. You done good. I mean, he was like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? I said, I'm hitting driver everywhere. And I did. That is a riskier play. The risk reward there is way higher, right? It's a longer club. You also risk bringing trouble into play. I, yeah, there's bunkers right, there's rough left, the fairway kind of slopes away from you. But, you know, and it was true what I said to him. I had, I just won the international. I already had a good year up to that point. I was playing well, but, you know, the driver was the strongest club in my bag. And I just felt like that was the way to play it. And I hit driver every single day. I don't think I missed the fairway on that hole. And the final round, the stats say I missed one fairway, but I missed a fairway in the first cut by about six inches. But driver was the play for me. That was the golf course for the first time I'd I'd ever seen it. But that golf course off the tee box just was so easy for me. And I go back there these days and I look at it. I'm just going, how? What was I thinking? What was I seeing that was so easy about driving it around here? Because it's not that easy. It's interesting that those wins made you more confident as opposed to sort of made you want to not risk the status that you were earning on tour. Like you doubled down on that bet and just said, we're going all in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I'm more of an aggressive personality anyways. If things are going well, you know, come on, let's keep pushing. I mean, I I just, there was no reason for me to not go with what my strengths would have been, which is driving the golf ball that week. But the one thing about that too is (laughs) Greg Norman said this one about myself and Mark Kalkovecchia, another great player, major winner. He goes, you know, I've never met two guys that haven't seen a flagstick that they don't like, meaning that if there's a flagstick on a green, I'm going to figure out a way to get to it. You're going to. I, I just, yeah, I mean, I just, I can't not do it. There's no chance of me aiming away from a flagstick. Mm. They put it there for a purpose for me to get it close. It hasn't always worked out in my favor, but when it has worked out, I've been very good, very successful at it, but I've just been one of those guys, one of those personalities on the golf course. If I feel like I can hit a shot, 
you know, I'm going to pull it off. I'm like Phil Mickelson's lesser, lesser <laughs> successful child because <laughs> he does the same thing, but he pulls it off a lot more than I ever could. But that's the way to play golf. I mean, Arnold Palmer played that way. You know, I love watching Phil play, and that's the way I play. It's just like if I think I can, I'm gonna I can't stop myself from doing. <laughs> so, so you're leading on Saturday night, the third day of a four day tournament. How do you sleep? How do you rest going into the final day of a major championship with the lead? Well, actually, I wasn't in the lead. I Justin oh. Leonard was leading by three. That's okay. okay. Justin yeah. Leonard was leading by three, but I was in the final group, which is a big enough deal, anyways. I fell asleep by going to Chili's and having. <laughs> having fajitas and queso dip and three Coors Lights and going back and taking a, a half a muscle relaxer. <laughs> My wife's a pharmacist, so she okayed the half of a, a muscle relaxer to get some sleep because she goes, you're going to need it. You're not going to sleep very well without right, a little help. Right. So, <laughs> Chili's, but, the Chili's muscle relaxer combo. That's exactly what it should have been. That's exactly what it should have been. Obviously, I'd never been there before, but I had one two weeks prior, the last time I teed it up, and I wasn't in the final group there. And yeah, I'm nervous as hell. God, I'm nervous as hell. But thankfully, I woke up fairly, I slept well that night, and then you know I had to pack all my stuff up. I had to get ready to leave that night. And so I had things to do that morning, which helped out kill time, because I think what the hardest thing to do for a lot of a lot of professionals that are in that situation, something that Tiger was phenomenal at because he did it so many times, was kill time. Mm. Kill time before a, a 2 3 o'clock tee time. Because when I'm at home in Austin, Texas, I never tee off that late. I go out early, play with my buddies. That way I've got the rest of the day to hang out instead of the opposite where I don't want to do anything beforehand and then go out and play golf in the afternoon because I just feel like I have too many things in my mind. So killing time during the day when you have to play golf that late at any tournament, much less a major, that's always difficult. You know, we had the benefit too, though, of being not on the East coast time, but central time. So we teed off, I think at like one 30 in the afternoon. So, you know, I had less time to kill than having to go out at say three o'clock that afternoon. So that made it a little bit easier, but I slept pretty good, but I, I got to say that you have to keep your mind active on other things before you go tee off. Because once you get there and you've got the 40,000 people watching you, you can't hide and you know what's on the line. And so you better embrace it or you're going to get run over. You're not going to survive. <laughs> you play really well on Sunday. You've got the lead going and you're playing with Justin Leonard. Tiger is in front of you and he's beating up everybody on tour that season and right. has a phenomenal stretch of birdies on the back nine. What are you yeah. thinking as you're coming up 18? How do you keep from soiling yourself as you're standing over your approach shot to the 18th? I got to say, I've been asked that question so many times, but you said it the best way. How do you keep from soiling yourself? That was brilliant. Thank you for that. A couple things, you know, Tiger birdied 15, 16, 17, and 18, but thankfully he was playing with Fred Funk that week. And Fred was, Fred was a big story. His brother was battling alcoholism, alcohol abuse. And so Fred came out with that story on Thursday after he was leading, very emotional about it. So the fans up there uh, got around him. And so every time I heard the roars go up, I'm thinking, yes, way to go, Freddie, knowing full well that it's probably not Fred. But, you know, you just kind of have to <laughs> assume that you don't want to start thinking about Tiger in that situation, which I didn't. I didn't, thankfully. Coming up the last hole, I've got the greatest caddy, I think, of all time, for me anyways, and he knows me better than anybody else. He hands me the driver and he says, do me a favor. I said, what's that? 
He goes, hit this thing as hard as you can. Now, in the history of caddies and player relationships, I'm not too sure that there's any player, players got instruction from his caddy, hey, hit this thing as hard as you can. Usually players or caddies are like, okay, smooth swing here, you know, put a good swing on it. No. He's like, hit this sucker as hard as you possibly can. And his rationale was that when I get nervous, you hit it straighter. And listen, if you swing as hard as you can, you're going to hit it straight again. And of course, I hit it right down the middle, longest drive of the day. The second shot, though, that's when I was about to soil myself. This is the God's honest truth. I'm sitting <laughs> over the shot and I'm sitting, I'm shaking so bad. I'm shaking so bad. I literally tell myself before I pull the club away, don't shank it. Whatever you do, don't <laughs> shank it. Not, not let's hit it to the middle part of the green. Let's hit it to the back edge. Let's hit it. Out. Don't shank it. And I came up and out of it. I thinned it to the front edge. I ended up three putting, only three putt of the week, ended up three putting, but I had a two-stroke lead, so that was good enough. But I, I, I'm not kidding you. I literally said to myself, don't shank it in front of all these folks because I, I don't know if I can I can make bogey from where I shank it to. <laughs> so you win the PGA Championship. How does your life change? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I used to joke about it just to kind of deflect because I just didn't want to believe that my life was going to change. I always said, you know, well, I've gotten a lot taller, you know, better looking, sure. smarter, you know, a lot of things. Cause people want your time. They want to talk to you. They want to understand who you are. They want to stand because, you know, before that I was a guy that won twice, but you know, nothing like this and certainly not taking down Tiger in his prime. And that was the first time Tiger had ever finished runner up in a major. It changed quite a bit. The demands of my time, I don't say demands, but the people asking my time obviously blew up. And I'm not a guy to say no. I hate the word no. So I'm going to try and accommodate everybody. And I did it back then because it was fun. It was great. It was entertaining. But what I failed to realize is that it can get the best of you after a while. You know, I think that a lot of people's expectations of me went up as far as what kind of golf I was going to play. I think that was a little unfair because I understand my golf game. I understand what's inside of me. I know what I'm capable of, but I also, on the good side, but I also know what I'm capable on the bad side too. Right. I mean, I know that my downfall is firing at every flag stick and I know that it doesn't always work out. And I know that, you know, when you short side yourself on the PGA Tour, you're not going to have a very long career. But when everything is going well, it's easy. It's great. It's fun. But there was a lot of demands on my time and I wish I had gotten a little bit better handle on it. I wish I would have gotten a little bit better guidance from some folks that uh, just wasn't there because I look back at it now. And I didn't handle everything that well. I screwed up quite a few times. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, I felt like I was invincible. And I certainly wasn't. Did those expectations on you affect the way you played the game? I don't know if they changed the way that I played the game. But I think I remember very vividly there was in Sports Illustrated, there was uh, they had these Monday morning quarterbacks, these club pros, guys that I'd never heard of. <laughs> and they do an assessment of guys, PGA Tour players, because PGA professionals, they run the game. You know, the USGA, they govern the game, but PGA of America, they run the game. All your head pros, your club pros, GMs, they are the ones inside the pro shop. They're the ones running everything about it. They should be complimented for what they do. They have a hard job. But there's some guy who I'd never met, never in a million years. And I started off, I started off in 2003 and I was completely fried. 
I mean, I was done. I traveled in November and December. I mean, I had maybe two weeks off before I had to go back out to Hawaii. And I just showed up and I wasn't in a good frame of mind. I had no time to myself. Everything was just go, 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 go. And I show up the first three events and I play horribly. And after the third event, this guy at Sports Illustrated writes this article saying that he basically trashes me and says, just shows that two hot weeks with the putter will get you some wins on tour, but you have to have more game than that to be out there for a long time. Something like that. And I thought to myself, you sorry, mother. I mean, like, who are you? You don't know me. You've never talked to me. You don't know my game. You don't know what's going on in my life, my world. And that ate at me. Mm. And what I found was there's a lot more things that ate at me. And it goes back to the expectations. People think that they know your game. People think that they understand what's going on. But as I said earlier, unless you see what's going on off the golf course, unless you see what's going on outside of the ropes, you can't judge what a guy's doing inside the ropes just by golf alone. I mean, you can, but I don't. When I commentate, I want to know what else is going on. Did the guy just have a breakup with his girlfriend? Did he lose mm-hmm. a dog? There's always something else out there, it seems to me. There's more to the story than what bogeys and birdies say. And so John Rahm, I predicted he was going to have a great year this year. Why? Because he got married last year. And I just think <laughs> the guys are in a happy mood that way. Yeah, you know? Sergio yeah. Garcia, same thing. And he, he did, got married. Right? He got married and he won the Masters the next year. I mean, it's just, to me, some players are that way. They play with that passion. They need that outside support to do well. So there was a lot of things that were written about me and the expectations of folks that I just didn't agree with. And nobody ever asked me my expectations. To be fair, I didn't really know what my expectations were. I wish I'd written them down. I wish that I had concentrated more on my expectations instead of trying to live up to other people's. Because so many people are going to come up to you encouraging you, oh, you got this, you're going to play well, this and that. And you're like, okay, I'm not 100% sure about that, you know, because I don't feel it inside me, but they just see what's going on. It's that old classics. You can see the duck on top of the water, but you can't see those web feet moving underneath. You have no idea what's going on inside. Was the game as fun for you? You seem to thrive on fun and energy of other people. Did some of that, did your success take away a little bit of that? The carefree nature of your game, the hold on loosely, go as fast as you can nature? Yeah, it did. And I think part of it too goes back to the expectations is the fact that people expected me to continue to play well and whatnot. But when I failed, people were quick to either judge or try and fix, you know, offer advice, things like that. And it's just like, well, listen, I failed a ton before all the wins (laughs) and all the success. Why are you, you know, just because I won a major doesn't change the fact that I'm going to fail a ton and the success is going to be fleeting. And so, yeah, I mean, part of it came from me too, is that I wanted to understand why I dug too deep and I was looking for stuff that wasn't broken and wanted to fix it. And when you have five years, and this has been said by more than one guy, uh, Craig Perks, another close friend now in TV, he won the O2 Players Championship. You know, you get a five-year exemption, all of a sudden you realize you have time, you have some freedom to change things that may not be broken. And so that's when you start going to look for things that aren't broken just because you perceive them to be. And so there was a lot of times that I did that. I got to say, it wasn't a lot of other folks as, you know, it was still 
mostly me too out there looking for things that I shouldn't have been looking for. Looking back on it now, it's it's pretty easy to figure out what I should have done versus what I did do. And, you know, that's, I think that's with every, with everybody. <laughs> yeah. I'm 51 now, so slightly older than you, but what you learn, one of the things you learn, one of the many things you learn when you get a little bit older is that a career isn't always a straight line of ascendancy up and to the right, right? There's peaks and there's valleys. And, you know, just because you make $3 million in 2002 doesn't mean you're going to keep making that kind of cash year after year after year, right? And you still did great for another eight years. But at a certain point, as is typical, the life cycle of an athlete rounds out and starts to decline. How do you manage your sense of self and your personal identity through the ebbs and flows of your professional success? Boy, that's a, that's a great question. I think as a golfer, and I don't know how other athletes feel about this, and I think this kind of could pertain to anybody in any walk of life. Maybe it's a little bit different for golfers. Each and every day, you can look, well, when we used to have newspapers, you can look in the newspaper, you can look online now, you can find out exactly what I shot. You can see exactly what I shot. You know, you can look at NBA players, Major League Baseball players. You can look at all those guys and see what they shot and, you know, what their stats were. And when I would get text messages after shooting 66, 67, you get 50 text messages saying, hey, great job, keep it up, this and that. And then the next day I'd go out and shoot 74, 75, and you get nothing back. Well, <laughs> pretty soon your sense of identity becomes what you shoot. So my identity, unfortunately, went down the road of what I shot. And that was so unfair to myself. And that was probably the beginning of the end for me is when I started associating my numbers, what I shot with who I am. Am I a 75 guy or am I a 68 guy? You know, people seem to love me when I shoot 68. People seem to love me when I win the PGA. But when I miss the cut, when I shoot 75, oh, that's too bad. It wears on you. And it's something that I try. My son's a golfer and I just tell him every single day, what you shoot is not you. That's just what you shot today, because I can promise you every single golfer, every single golfer is going to mess up. Dustin Johnson shot a pair of 80s, a 78 and withdrew, and then all of a sudden became the FedEx Cup champion earlier this year. It's not who you are. It's just what you did that day. And it might be what you do for a month, but it's not you. When things weren't going very well towards the end, yeah, I kind of had that panic. You kind of spiraled into a place where you're just like, this sucks. I'm not having any fun on the golf course. Mm which is where I had the most fun. I bet you were great to be married to during that period of time. Uh, listen, I mean, it was absolutely blissful. And I got to say, you know, <laughs> it was great when I would come home off the road too, you know, and start day drinking. You know, that was great too, you know, when you're just so miserable everywhere you were. It was just like, oh, thankfully I've got an unbelievable wife. She and I have gotten through all of it together. Not saying that I don't screw up every once in a while again, but yeah, I mean, it's just when you start associating things that you shouldn't, that's when it kind of gets a little self-destructive, unfortunately. And you got to figure out a way around that. I've learned from that and be like, listen, you can't do that. You're the same person, no matter what score you write in that box in the day, when you walk off that golf course, you're the same guy that hopefully people still love, want to be around, hang out with, listen to your stories, share a beer with, or dinner, whatever the case may be. That's what I do, not mm -hmm. who I am. Right. I play golf. I announce. Like, listen, if I go out and I have a bad day announcing, 
who's going to know that I had a bad day announcing? Nobody, but I do. I know that I had a bad day announcing. I know that I missed a few things. I know that I repeated the same word a bunch of times. I understand these things about what you do. If you have a microphone in front of your face at any point, you know that you're going to say the same word over and over again because you just have it in your mind for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah would be a great one. It's a great shot there. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, you just, there's something, you have a word that's stuck in your mind for one day. You get back to the hotel, you realize it, and then you write that word down 50 times and you cross it out and you're like, okay, I won't say it again. But in golf, it's out there. People, they think because you shoot 78 that, you know, your world's about to self-destruct and like, shot 78 today. It was awful. It's not fun shooting 78, but listen, the sun's going to come up tomorrow and it's all going to be good. My wife's still going to love me. My kids are still going to love me. It's not who I am. It's just what I did yesterday. Now, F. Scott Fitzgerald said there's no second act in America, but the PGA, cha- the, the, sorry, here we are. Yeah. This is the beauty of not doing it live, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, listen, see, doing it live, though, is great because you can't expect people. I mean, I think that when I do live TV, if people think, if they expect perfection every time, listen. You get Jim Nance for- is what you get. Yeah, you get, but listen, Jim Nance messes up, but he just does it a little more eloquently. He does do it very, very, very smoothly. I love it when I mess up live on TV. I'm like, what in the world did I just say? What, what, I'm just, what, what was that? You know, I make fun of myself and I think people love it. When you're on live TV or when you do things live, you're supposed to mess up. Listen, I'm not a trained for, Jim went to school for that. I didn't, I'm an ex golfer. This is not what you grew up to be. Listen, I think it's great when we mess up because people think like, okay, he's human. Right. Well, I was trying to get all pithy here with the Fitzgerald quote, but the point being is that the Champions Tour is indeed a second act and it's proven to be a brilliant place for people to look, go watch. Look, these old guys are pretty damn good at this game. They are. They are. You got to make a lot of birdies out there, which I'm currently not doing enough of. (laughs) (laughs) So we bumped into each other at a golf club in Arkansas. Won't go deep on the details there, but you were saying that you had just finished a tournament and you finished DFL dead freaking last. What's your motivation when you go out on the first tee of the first day of a tournament on the champions tour? You know, now I've, I've come to realize it's my motivation is to make birdies early and as often as I can, because these guys out there, that's what they're doing. It's, it's called the five under tour. You got to shoot five under every single day in order to have a chance come Sunday. If you look at the winning scores with the exception of a couple of them, it's either 15 under or better that you've got to shoot. It's relentless. You have to go out there and you got to make birdies as early and as often as you can. And for somebody that hasn't been out there doing it, for a long time, it's hard. I mean, the only times that I've played really in the last six years has been at the PJ Championship. And I've done pretty good. I've made a few cuts, but there's not a whole lot of birdies that I'm making out there. I mean, I'm just trying not to make bogeys. And on the Champions Tour, you got to think birdie every single hole if possible. And getting back in that mindset is different. And the guys that I'm competing against, hell, they've been doing it burn longer. This is 13th year out there. He's still making a hundred birdies. It seems like in a week, it's insane. So you got to get out there, change the mindset. It's a second, I don't say it's a second chance, but it's a, it's a way to get back out there, be competitive again, if you can be. And if it works out and I'm able to stay out here for a few years, that's going to be awesome. And if not, then I'm, as I always say, every day before I go on air, all right, it's time to make some stuff up. 
you know, and I'll just go make stuff up on TV. That's educated stuff, you know, it's educated BS, but it's, you know, it's just commenting on what you see and telling any stories and anecdotes because unlike Mr. Jim Nance, I'm not getting fed some information, not saying that he's not great, but he's got a guy that's feeding him information. He doesn't retain all of that folks. I promise you. And I love you, Jim, but he doesn't retain all of that. Hilarious. Most of it, but not all of it. <laughs> all right. Two questions. I will to let you go. Now as a commentator for Sky Sports, you get paid to be yourself. Is there anything better than that? No, God, no. I've fallen in love with it because I think that when I first got into the commentating business, I felt like, you know, Jim Nance is obviously the gold standard, right? And he seems to be perfect. He puts a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of it, but he is that voice. He is that guy. And I think the only way that you're going to succeed in the TV business is by being yourself. And everybody tells me that or told me that when I got into it. But finding yourself, though, and finding your personality is a little bit different because the personality that, say, you think that I might have versus what I think I have, what I've learned is that my humor and the way that I look at things, kind of like the exchange we just had, it's not that I came out with something funny, but I built on something that you did, and I kind of have fun with that, and then I run with it. So I feed off of what other people say. I feed off of other people's energy. That's my personality. And when I have three other people that are on air with me, I promise you, one of us is going to mess something up and it's time to pounce and have some fun with it because (laughs) we are in the entertainment business and I love it. I think it's fantastic. Calling golf to me is fun, but it's the people that I work alongside that make it worthwhile every single day. I enjoy that part of it. Now, lastly, what did your dad teach you about money and success and what do you want to teach your kids? You know, that's a good question. I don't know if my dad, you know, my dad ever really taught me a whole lot about money, to be fair. And in about success, success is, is kind of what you want to make it. I mean, I think people look at, take Champions Tour, for example. Tommy Fleetwood, one of my closest friends, very successful guy, I think he's top 10 in the world. He says, you're going to need a Brinks truck for the Champions Tour because of all the money you're going to make. And yet for me... I know that success on the Champions Tour is going to be a very slow process if I even get there, but a process I'm looking forward to. So success is, it takes time in certain instances, but it's always, it's always there. I mean, anything can change in the blink of an eye, especially in the game of golf. Probably more than anything else, so my dad, I don't say he really taught me this, but he showed me this, is that you can't get around it without working your tail off. And my dad, as I said, was a club pro for the military. And even though he had some pretty prestigious jobs there, I've seen my dad cleaning toilets. I've seen him mowing the fairways, raking bunkers, mowing greens, fixing the irrigation lines, flipping burgers, pouring beer, giving lessons, you name it. There wasn't a single thing that dad wouldn't do pretty much for anybody, you know, and he found satisfaction in that. Now, he didn't really like cleaning toilets, I'm sure, but damn sure if it needed to get done, it got done one way or the other, whether he had somebody do it or if he had to do it himself. I think because of that, some folks are a little surprised that, listen, you don't need to cater to me. I will figure this out. I can, just a stupid example, I had to return a rental car the other day, and the only way to get from the airport where the rental car dropped me off to my hotel was either call a taxi for a mile 
or walk. So I started walking. It's no big deal. I will figure out a way to get things done and I will do whatever it takes, whatever the job requires to get it done. I don't want to be catered to. I don't want to be pandered to. I don't want to be treated like anybody else. Although I do like flying first class. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie on that. Sitting in the back sucks. But beyond that, give me the simple things of life and I'm going to be just dandy. I don't need all the all the flair and the fluff. And I think by watching my dad do all that. Dad didn't give a shit about all the exorbitant things in life. And he had the opportunity to do a lot of cool things, but he was a very simple guy. And I think by watching him do all that, I learned that's kind of who I am. It's nice to be catered to every once in a while, but listen, move aside. I can regrip my own club. I can do stuff on my own. I don't need, why don't you cater to the other guys that need it because their egos demand that. My ego doesn't demand that. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Rich. Where can our listeners follow you on the internet? They can follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Beamer PGA. Just keep in mind that I throw out funny stuff, or at least I find funny. Every once in a while, I do one political thing, but that's going to be done. Yeah, just keep in mind that I have fun with all of it, and everything that I do is tongue-in-cheek, and I'm just trying to look at the bright side of things. There you go. <laughs> and Beamer is B-E-E-M-E-R. Yeah, B-E-E-M-E-R. And yeah. we'll have links to that in the show notes. Rich Beam, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for your time. That was a blast. Well, I enjoyed that conversation, as you could tell. We've had so many great guests on Crazy Money recently, and I'm just honored that these folks are willing to come on to take the time to share with us insights from their lives, the ups and the downs, so that we have the opportunity to live our best lives and maybe just not feel so bad by comparison sometimes. I know that retirement is a huge, huge adjustment for everyone, whether you've been in the accounting business for 30 years or whether you're a professional athlete who at 31 has to reinvent himself like Apollo Ono talked about a few weeks ago. These are huge adjustments. It's really important that we as human beings share our vulnerability about these things because anybody that wants to pretend like it's super easy to transition into a new professional identity isn't being honest or they're just really, really, really lucky. So I appreciate Rich today sharing those insights. Let's talk about a few key takeaways. Number one, careers are not always straight lines up and to the right. For some people, yes, but for most people, it doesn't work like you come out of college and then you make manager and then you make senior director and then you make vice president and then senior vice president. Maybe it does, but for most, life happens. Recessions happen. Crazy bosses happen. Acquisitions happen. Companies go out of business. You got to take time off for health reasons or for family reasons. It's just life happens. And you should be trying to manage your life over the course of decades, not the next promotion. And I thought that was really good. Very closely related to that is you're not your score. I appreciate Rich's candor so much that he would come out and just say, you know, it sucks to not play as well as you did when you were the darling. You know, he's a PGA champion a few years later. He's injured. He's recovering from surgery. And life's just a little bit more difficult. Well, a lot more difficult. We're all going to go through these phases in one form or another. And remember that you're not your score, however you define score, whether it's your paycheck or your title or whatever, that's not what it's about. Keep that in mind as you go through your day. I also love the fact, we'll call this the third takeaway, how important his wife was to him. The tranquility that entered his life when he found the right person to be with 
was key to his professional success, that he knew he could rely on her and that she could rely on him and that they were going to be together and all the drama that happens when you're dating is over. I thought that was a really cool key insight. It was only that we finally got engaged that I realized I had been wasting a lot of energy in the whole dating world for so long. It's like, oh, wow, that is a peaceful way. This is why this is why married men have lower insurance rates than single guys because single guys are out there spinning their wheels, creating all kinds of drama and stress in their lives that's 100% optional. We get a bonus takeaway this week. Here's what we're going to get. The bonus takeaway is when you want to get a good night's sleep, go with the Chili's Fajitas, three cores light, and half a muscle relaxer. Don't do that and blame me. I'm not a doctor. I cannot give you advice. I'm just saying I might keep that in my back pocket for me. Everybody, thanks for listening all the way to the end. I really appreciate it. If you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, do me a favor, share this with three friends. Pick three friends who you know love reading, love thinking, love talking about life's big issues. Send this program to those three friends. I really appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another great episode. For now, thanks to my editor, producer, and pal, Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart.